0: I left a, I guess, a loose end last night a little bit in Matthew 18. Uh, the subject we were discussing was not offending one another either direction, not taking offense or giving offense, and we got down to that section which talks about if your brother trespass against you and you go and tell him the problem or the fault or the transgression alone and then take another witness or two, so that it might be established in the mouth of two or three witnesses. And that's the way God does it. At the end, he will have two witnesses against the world. That is sufficient. However, there may be times when the person who committed the infraction will not be willing to correct it or admit it or give you opportunity, in that sense, to even forgive him. Because he will not face the situation or correct it or whatever. Then it says, Take it to the church. Now, this one has been used considerably down in verse 17 of Matthew 18 to show that it ought to be taken to the whole church because the word here used is ecclesia or ecclesia uh, in the Greek, which means the called out once. <clears throat> now, does that mean that we take it to the whole church or to those who govern, oversee, or make decisions in the church in matters. This has become a bone of contention more and more as the church has fallen apart. So let's pick it up there and discuss that a bit today, because that is an area here that needs to be ironed out to see what Christ would have us do and what the correct answer to that is. It needs to be made clear. Verse 17, And he shall neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto you as a heathen man and a publican. So, if this individual would not listen He was to be declared a heathen and a publican. That's pretty serious, isn't it? He's not willing to repent, not willing to change. When it is brought to whomever it was brought to here, he is to be put out, become as a heathen, not to be a part anymore. Let's continue in the context. The subject here overall is not causing offense, and forgiveness. That's what the whole context is about. And when we get through with this little problematic section, it goes right back to that through a parable by Jesus Christ. Let's see if we can make sense of it. Truly I say to you, whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, this, along with Matthew 16, 18, has been used by the Catholic Church to say they can make whatever decision they decide to make on something, and God will automatically bind it or loose it in heaven. Now, is that logical, and does that make sense? Is that a correct assessment of those two passages? What if the Pope, made a judgment that was contrary, clearly contrary to Scripture. Would that then be loosed or bound in heaven? <clears throat> Let's say they changed the Sabbath from the seventh day to the first day. Would that be loosed or, in this case, well, loosed from Saturday and bound on Sunday in heaven? I think we would all say, no, we're not Catholics. Now, what if in the church of God, a judgment was made contrary to Scripture? What if the church determined that we no longer needed to keep Saturday, but Sunday? Hmm, that sounds kind of like the example I just used. Weird. That has happened in the church of God. Has it not? Many people who had kept the Sabbath for decades believed that church government is so strong that if the Tkachas changed the Sabbath from the Sabbath to Sunday, they should go along. They bought it. That is truly scary. All right, so far I've only talked about the ministry. What if this means the whole church? Let's say there's a congregation of 500. And someone starts keeping Sunday within the church of 500. And this is considered a trespass or a sin against those who would keep the Sabbath. What if we all got together, or that congregation all got together, and voted on the matter? And however the vote came out, it would be bound in heaven. Does that make sense? Either way, that kind of authority doesn't make sense, whether it's a popular vote or a decision by an apostle or two or three elders, or whatever. The Williams translation makes this a little clearer. Whatever you loose or bind on earth had better be that which is already bound or loosed in heaven. You cannot contravene Scripture. You cannot change what God has already established in Scripture. And I think that is a more correct rendition just taken, as it reads in the King James, it sounds like you can make any decision you want. Now, I realize that the context here is about a trespass or a fault. Should it be taken to everyone and a vote be made? Now, let's say someone sinned against you. Lied, cheated, stole, whatever they did. And there was a congregation of 500, and they were all called together to decide what should be done in this matter. Would that create unity and harmony? Now, as the case was laid out, just like a case in court is laid out, there are many, many different opinions which would surface. Everyone would have his or her opinion or thought, as to what should be done in that case. Someone, some would recommend execution by hanging. Some would, some would say we should put them out of the church. Some would say, say they should only be suspended for a week. Quite a few would say, I don't see that there's anything wrong done here. I think that this is all backward. And it would create all manner of division and confusion. And when you put it to a vote, people would already be polarized. There would be four, five, six, eight, ten, fifteen 10, 15 different camps or thoughts of belief that would have spread to other people. <clears throat> this group would block together because they were birds of a feather. And these different birds would block over here. And you would have five, six, eight, ten, fifteen 10, 15 different groups That is not unity and harmony. The obvious fruit of that kind of thing is not something that is good, nor is it something historically that God ever, anywhere in history, has done. There is no place in the Bible where anything was ever put to the people, be it the congregation of Israel, or the church, for a vote on how it should be handled. You cannot find an example of that. It just isn't in there. So this one may be a little bit unclear <clears throat> to some in the way that it is written, but can you turn the evidence of everything that God has written from Genesis to Revelation and throw it out the window because this might be a little bit unclear in the way that it is written as to whether this is talking about the whole congregation or those who oversee, guide, direct, preach, and teach to the congregation. <clears throat> what is God's standard for us? Now, let's go on to verse 19. He's repeating something here. He says, again, this is a repetition of the thought above. Again, again. I say to you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. Now, who is that they shall ask talking about? It's talking about two or three individuals who went to this one person who had committed an infraction. They were the ones who asked for a judgment he narrows it right back after verse 18 to two or three making a judgment, not 500 or 50 or 60. He repeats what he said above. Two or three witnesses take it to the church. And where two of you shall agree... It shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, that is, by my authority. In my name means by my authority. So two or three who are appointed to make judgments in those cases gather together, and God said He would be with them in guiding and leading a decision to be made. So the context here is Keep it as small as you can. Talk to your brother alone. And if he won't hear you, and there is truly a grievance there that is hard for one of you to get over, or both of you, then take one or two witnesses with you so that you establish it in the mouths of two or three. Then, if that doesn't work, you take it to the church And a decision will be made by two or three, and he will be there among them. The warning in verse 18 is that you had better do it according to Scripture. Whatever you do, it better be what is either loosed or bound in heaven. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? That it has to be according to God's definition, according to God's Word. You can't keep. It doesn't make any sense to say one person, three people, 500 people, and then make the comment again, repeating that this decision be made by two or three. Now the whole object here was to settle it on as small a stage as possible, so that it does not hurt or create division and frustration. In 500, instead of the two that were frustrated to start with, it makes no sense to broaden it from one to two and three, then to 500, and then back to two or three. Makes no sense at all. Doesn't fit the context. And the translation in verse 18 in the King James is very poor. And in that, you can have unanimity. If someone has been appointed elder, they should have a certain amount of wisdom and understanding, and if you get two or three of the elders together, they should be able to make a judgment in that case. Now, how has God done it historically? When two people had a contention with one another, did Moses say, all right, we've got three and a half million Israelites here, let's all get together and let's vote on this. How long would it take to poll three and a half million Israelites? You'd have to take them all. If that's the form of government that you had, you would by necessity have to take the vote of everyone. It would not be fair to only take the vote of one million. It would have to be a true majority. Now, we're told that they were lined up to see Moses, and though he made judgments from day to night and into the night, perhaps. He simply could not handle the caseload. The Israelites must have quarreled a lot and sinned a lot against each other. Hmm. Interesting revelation. How long would it have taken on each one of those cases To get three and a half million, I'm just picking that number out of the air, we've assumed there could have been that many, two, three, four million, no difference here, in case you get hung up on details. How long would it take to poll all those people on each case that came up? How long does it take to count electronic votes in this country? And then how long to argue over chads before you can determine a matter. They didn't have electronics. They didn't even have papers and pens for the most part. Scrolls were rare, and feathers and ink were rare. They would have had to do some kind of voice count throughout all the tribes. It might have taken a day or two or three on each matter. And they were already lined up to the horizon. You know what? The line would have just gotten longer and longer and longer, wouldn't it? Because it took so long to determine each case. God has never, ever done things that way. Now, Jethro looked at the situation and said, Moses, you need help. Appoint some elders, appoint some men of wisdom to handle the lesser cases, and you only handle the ones that are more serious because he simply couldn't handle the workload. And that was approved. Jesus was not here at some point in time, so he had appointed a body of men as apostles <coughs> to supervise and administer the church. And as the church grew, there had to be evangelists and pastors and teachers, prophets and so on, to help out. And that is the government that God set up in the New Testament church. It is absolutely undeniable. Now let's go for a moment back to Matthew 16, which was not, which is some teaching not too far back in time from Matthew 18 when Christ was discussing these things with his disciples. Let's see what he says in Matthew 16 <coughs> and beginning in verse 17. Because this one is used by the Catholics and was used by the church in a wrong way more than Matthew 18 was. But it essentially says the same thing. Who is it directed at? Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed it to you, that is about his identity, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also to you. Now he said, you recognize that I am the Christ. That didn't come from you, but God revealed that information to you, Peter. Now, you know who I am. Let me make it clear. I say also to you that you are Peter, and it's been pointed out many times that Peter was Petros, or a small stone, a pebble. And upon this rock... That had to be Christ. He used a different word, Petra, which means a big rock. And we find from other scriptures that it's very clear that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone, that the church was established on him, not Peter. So this verse itself does not have to stand on its own, because many other verses indicate that Christ was the head of the church and the founder, and it is his church, not Peter's. And the gates of the grave shall not prevail against it. I'm going to build something that cannot be destroyed. Man can't do that. Only God can. Now, and I will give to you. Is he addressing the whole church here? He is addressing Peter in particular here. Speaking directly to Peter. He's not speaking to all the apostles, although they were there hearing it. But who later became the physical head of the church? Obviously, Peter. I will give to you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, to give that man, and he was just a man, and he had been a man who was unconverted and had some strange connections at times, he was going to give him the keys, excuse me, the keys of the kingdom of God. What do keys of the kingdom of God mean? Now, if you have the key to this building, to the doors on it, that's what a key is for, is for a door. What is the purpose of that key? It is to be able to unlock that door and permit access or entry into the building behind the door. That is the purpose of a key. So, what Christ was going to give Peter was that which would unlock access to the kingdom of God. That is a pretty serious responsibility. Now, we know in John it says that Christ is the only way, that he is the door, and if you enter in any other way, then you're a thief and a robber. That's very clear. Now, what is the key that Christ just gave Peter? The previous verse. You're the little boy, I'm the big boy. Keep this in mind. I'm giving you information that is important for you to be a part of the kingdom of God and for others who will listen to you to be a part of the kingdom of God. In other words, he was showing Peter that he was the Christ. And that if you were entered into the kingdom of God, you had better keep that in mind. This was not given to show Peter, and later appropriated by the Pope or by the church, that they were what was preeminent and important. No, it was Jesus Christ who was preeminent and important. So the flavor here is not that you will be given all authority over everything, but that you had better be reminded who is in charge. That is a key to entering the kingdom of God. Just as John said, Christ was the way and the life and the only door whereby the sheep might enter, as John quoted Christ of saying. Now, verse 19 does not contradict that. I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven we have traditionally misunderstood this verse. And what it really says is, whatever you bind and loose had better be that which is already bound and loosed in heaven. In other words, I'm the Christ, this Bible is my word, And whatever you bind or loose had better be according to this book. This is what God has given us to consult in order to make right, wise, holy decisions. Our opinions don't count. Scripture must be applied to be sure what God would bind and what God would loose. Now, he did give certain authority to have different administrations and different ways of doing things, but it always had to be within the confines of Scripture. This is the standard that Christ gave us and the Father gave us, whereby to make decisions. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Why? His purpose was to establish through them a church— and they would have the knowledge which would uh, permit people to become a part of the kingdom of God. They would be given those keys. But it wasn't for general or the general population to know. This was something that was inside information, if you will. Something only they would know about. Now, if he was the Christ, wouldn't he want it known that he was the Christ? Well... Obviously not, according to his own words. He was establishing something through these men, and they were the only ones at that point who needed to know. Now, that fits with chapter 18, verse 18. That you will have to make decisions, but they had better be according to my word. Now, Is that just my interpretation, or can that be backed up? 1 Corinthians 12, I'm not going to go into a whole series here on government at the moment, but from time to time these questions come up, and it is a major question in the church today. 1 Corinthians 12 is about the body and how it must be joined together. It talks about different administrations, but the same Lord, and different operations or activities, but the same Lord. Verses 4, 5, and 6 talks about one body and how God has set the members of the body as it pleased Him. If you find an organization, a body of God's people, then He will have set the people in that organization the way He intended. He says so in very plain terms. Why? Verse 25, that there should be no schism, that is, no division, no disruption. Unity, closeness, oneness. Isn't that what he told us? And we read uh, in John 15, 16, and 17, Passover night, that we are to be one as he and the Father are one. There are people who say, it's okay if I have different opinions. No, it is not. Not according to Scripture. We should all be working toward and eventually should come to the point There is no schism, no division, no difference of opinion, but that we should all be one in Christ. The Father and the Son do not disagree on anything. That is a fact of Scripture. They agree on everything. They are completely one in mind. Thought, spirit, and attitude. Doctrine and teaching. Jesus doesn't have different ideas than his Father. Now, there is one who has different ideas than the Father and the Son. That was Satan. If there is division, if there is not oneness, there is carnality, and Satan has his finger in there somewhere. I can prove that to you in Scripture. We are meant to be one, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. We should love each other equally. There should not be division and favoritism. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. For one member be honored, or, or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. He's saying we're all a body and that that body has to have harmony. The the hand simply can't disregard what the brain desires of it. He uses the body because God made a human body to work together in perfect coordination. Some of us are more coordinated than others. And when we're not coordinated, we walk goofy, talk goofy, or act goofy in some way or another. And when we're in school, as we're growing up, if our bodies are not coordinated and we can't catch a basketball or a football and we tangle our legs up and fall on our faces, we're very embarrassed by it. Because it is correct and right that all pieces of the body work together in perfect harmony so that the body is not uncoordinated and doesn't fall on its face and make stupid-looking gestures, and movements. That's why he uses the body. Now, you are the body of Christ, and members specifically are in particular. And God has set each one where he wants it. Now, some of those in the body tend to chafe over that. They don't think that they are getting perhaps the recognition they should have. And they chafe over it. Now, that's a problem with that body part. It's not, it becomes a problem with the body because it doesn't act in uh, harmony with the rest of the body. This is such a simple analogy, but it is so true. Have you ever seen anybody with a wandering eye? You know, one eye is looking here and the other one goes over yonder. We've probably always seen, we've seen someone like that. You know, that that eye just doesn't do what the rest of the body says to do. The brain says, look at here, and one eye looks here, and the other one goes over yonder. It's disconcerting to try to talk to someone like that because everything on them isn't in harmony, and you don't notice the harmony maybe of the rest of their thinking or their body. You only notice that one thing that is out of harmony, that isn't working right. Ever seen anybody with a flipper? You don't look at the rest of that person. You look at the flipper. People in wheelchairs say that people treat them differently and strangely just because they're in a wheelchair. And they receive all kinds of abuse. Kids make funny comments about them because everything in their body is not working perfectly and therefore... They can't get up and walk. Now, God put us here in positions in particular. And God has set, not man, but God has set in the true church. Some in the church, not all, but some. First, apostles. Secondarily, prophets. Thirdly, teachers. After that, miracles. Then, gifts of healings. Helps, governments, diversities of tongues are all apostles. Now people say, well that doesn't mean just because he says first, second, third, and so on that there's a hierarchy or an order or rank. But I think it can be proved very easily in the Bible that there is. That the apostle had the highest authority, the highest rank. Christ made those twelve apostles. Did Timothy tell Paul... Where to go? Timothy was an evangelist. Paul was an apostle. First, apostles, secondarily prophets, teachers, doesn't he mention evangelists here? But the rank of evangelists obviously was lower because Paul sent Timothy to Corinth. Timothy did not send Paul. They didn't vote on it. Paul said, Timothy, go to Corinth. Timothy saddled up or bought a ticket on a boat and went to Corinth. Now, let's go for a moment to Ephesians 4, verse 11. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, evangelists are included in this one, some pastors and teachers. Now, what was the purpose of that? Was it so that they might appear to be important? No, there was a job that needed done for the perfecting of the saints. Now, if you are put in a position to perfect, to mature the saints then you must have been put in a place to guide, to lead, to direct, to help the saints become perfect or mature. That's what the book says. For the work of the ministry, a specific job of service and ministry to the church, for the edifying of the body of Christ, to inspire, to encourage, to strengthen, to lead them to be like Christ. till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That is the job of the ministry, to bring the ministry and the children and the people, everyone, to the stature of the fullness of Christ. He is the standard, and God has set those to teach, to preach, to guide, to lead, to exhort to do everything necessary to bring people to that point. That is the stated purpose here of those offices. Why? Continuing, verse 14, that we henceforth be no more children. He says we've been children or like children that have no guidance, no direction, no help to become what they ought to be. Children left to themselves do what? They bring their mother to shame. The mother is represented as the church in Scripture to lead children to the Father. That is the goal. We're not to be like children anymore, but we have been given a mother to help us become what we ought to be. So we're not to be like children tossed and fro, to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the craftiness, cunning craftiness of men whereby they lie in wait to deceive. So in continuing it here, he said the ministry is there, these offices are there, to be sure that the church does not follow every wind of doctrine. It is the job of the ministry to teach true doctrine so that we might all what? Believe and do the same things. We do not do it by vote. Can you imagine what the church would look like We all voted on every issue. On any given issue, there could be several different opinions. And it would divide the church into different groups. Now, is that not what we are seeing today in the greater church of God? We're seeing more and more division as more and more people disagree on doctrine. And every man is leaning to his own understanding which happened in Israel at one point, and it was a bad time in Israel's history. This is a very bad time in the history of the church. Very bad. great deal of confusion and people being tossed about by every wind of doctrine. Now, we need to find teachers who understand and know the truth that God has set to teach. Now, if you have found that here, this is where you should be. If you have not found that here, you need to continue your quest and go elsewhere until you find that. Now, it takes time. There is a learning curve. And Paul didn't say, well, we ought to all go our own direction. He said we need to work at coming to brotherhood and one belief. So that the schisms and divisions might disappear, we shouldn't all disband just because we disbelieve or disagree. We should work at coming to agree. And there are those who have been set that that might be accomplished. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians for a few minutes. I want to show you how things were handled in the New Testament church. Now, Paul had heard or read the things that Christ had told Peter and had said to the disciples, and that's whom Christ was addressing when he did Matthew 18, was those disciples. And Paul had been taught of Christ himself for years in the desert. So he had it straight from Christ. Now, if Peter, James, and John had misunderstood government, you would think Christ would have said, I'm telling you right now, Paul, those guys have it wrong. Wouldn't he? Wouldn't he have corrected it? Because he was going to send Paul out as the apostle to all the Gentile peoples. And he certainly would have wanted Paul to get it right, wouldn't you think? If he was to be God's appointed one to teach all those people. I would think he would want Paul to have it right. How did Paul handle a sin, a contention, a trespass against the brotherhood in the church? He handled quite a few such cases throughout his ministry and they're mentioned in the Bible. How did he handle it? Well, we know how Peter and James handled it when there was a contention in the book of Acts about circumcision and Gentiles. Did they take it to the Jerusalem church and say some people are getting circumcised and some aren't and some ministers are letting Gentiles in and some aren't? What are we going to do about this? Let's take it to Jerusalem and we'll send out a vote to decide what ought to be done. Some of these people are going to have to straighten up and some of them will be exonerated. Is that the way they handled it? No, they brought it together to the ministry, the body of the the ministers who represented the church. They discussed it back and forth, made their points. Peter made a very compelling speech, putting it all together, and James said, this is the way it's going to be. He backed Peter up. Peter is the one who established it, and James said, that's the way it's going to be. Now, there could be an argument, and has been, within the church and in the world and among scholars, as to who indeed made the decision. Was it James or Peter? That is not germane to the argument here. The argument is, and the answer is, one of those two did make the decision. doesn't matter which side you take, James or Peter, it wasn't a vote of the ministry, and it wasn't a vote of the congregation. Either James or Peter made the decision, and it was followed throughout the church. So let's go to the book of 1 Corinthians and see if Paul changed anything in terms of how James, Peter, John, and the other apostles handled issues in the church or differences in opinion or In that sense, sins against each other because some of these people were really getting upset with one another and felt that the one who let Gentiles in was sinning against him and sinning against the church and sinning against God. Now, is that the way Paul handled it or did he institute something different? All right, here's the first epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Corinthians. And it is a corrective book whereby he corrects many things. Part of it was government, as we've already seen in First Corinthians 12, that he established there that God had set offices in the church, and he reiterated that in his own hand in the book of Ephesians, which we've already gone to. But let's see how he handled one specific situation. Paul called to oversee a poll of church members in the church. I don't think so. Now, maybe you're reading a modern translation. Maybe it says that in your translation. I don't know. That's another subject. Maybe we can get to that sometime. But these modern translations are not translations. They are Protestant interpretations of the Bible. They are not Bibles. The living Bible, Bible means book, the living book is not a Bible. The New International Version is not a Bible. If you read those exclusively, you do not read the Bible. They are not translations. They are interpretations. The New International Version is the approved translation, quote-unquote, of the New World Order. It has the translations that go along with the New World Order. And it will be very much at center in the establishment of their new religion. That's why it's called the New International Version. It is not a Bible. The King James is a Bible. The New King James is a Bible. They have been translated. Now, the old King James has been translated or was translated in 1611, and it has some old words, but they were words that meant different things in that day. For instance, conversation in 1611 meant conduct. It did not mean talking. The language changes over the years. So there are things like that that need be corrected so that it fits the language as we understand it today. <coughs> But as far as the translation is concerned, it is essentially correct. But all these new versions have been made by Protestants who thought Protestant and who have injected their Protestant thinking into what is supposed to be the Scripture, and you simply cannot trust them. Now, they've been put in simpler language. The Living Bible, you say, well, that makes things so much clearer. In some cases, by putting it in modern language, it can make the meaning a little clearer. But in some cases, it totally distorts the meaning that was in the Greek or the Hebrew. And we need to understand that. Do not depend on doctrine or teaching with any of these new versions of the Bible. They cannot be trusted any more than Billy Graham can be trusted or any of these Protestant preachers. Just the way that it is. So be very careful. Anyway, how did I get over there? Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. God had placed him there. Christ had trained him. And it was by the will of God as so stated. Now, why did he say that first? Why didn't he say, Hi, Corinthians, haven't seen you in a long time. Uh, Hope I get over there pretty soon to see you. That's not the way you open the letter. This is a letter of correction. So he established right off the bat who he was. That could not be denied. And he said, this is to the church of God which is at Corinth. So it's very clear to whom he is writing. That congregation. Now, in verse 10, he says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind, in the same judgment. That is what Paul had received of Jesus Christ. Now, he brought this up because there were divisions, and it was not a good thing. It was something that needed to be resolved. Now, we'll see what... At least one of the divisions was about fairly shortly. Verse 12, now this I say that every one of you says, well, I'm of Paul. Another one says, I'm of Apollos. And another says, I'm of Peter. And another says, well, I'm of Jesus Christ. So we got out of the four categories, some who believe that this is the true leader. Some believe this one. And they try to divide them then into which ones they like. But then you had those who were so self-righteous that said, well, I don't listen to any man, I'm of Christ. We have a lot of that in the Church of God today. We're all here to be of Christ. Now, Paul, Apollos, and Peter were all of Christ. But people tried to divide and conquer and tear them down and make a difference. he says, I thank God I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius and then maybe a few others and the rest I don't even remember. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. But the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but to us which are saved it is the power of God. During these days of unleavened bread, it is my intent to preach... Christ, him crucified and resurrected, and the standard which he set for us to live by. Now, Paul is establishing the standard of judgment in the church here to the church in Corinth, which was divided. There were schisms. If they had held a vote on something, there would have been different opinions. That's the situation that existed. So, Paul said, I'm writing this letter to do what I can to solve this problem. It is considered a problem when we do not all agree. Okay? We've got to resolve that if that's the case anywhere we are. Let's see, verse 2 of chapter 2. I determine not to know anything among you save Christ and Him crucified, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling... He himself recognized his own faults and problems. My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's women, uh, wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. So he came to speak what God put in his mind and heart through the Scriptures and through inspiration and with power. He was not to be a reed shaken in the wind. and The ministry is not to be that way. What did Paul tell Timothy? Let no man despise you for your youth, but preach with power and strength. And don't let them despise you. Timothy did not instruct Paul again. Paul instructed Timothy, a young evangelist. Let's go on down to chapter 3. I, brethren, could not speak to you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for or before this you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are you able. When he established the new church, he didn't give them too much to work on to begin with. He didn't dump the whole load on them the first visit. He gave them a little at a time. He said, I fed you a little bit, I didn't give you meat, I gave you milk. I'd like to give you meat now, but you're still not able to take it. So if there are divisions and schisms among us, that means that we are not yet ready for meat. We are still babes who need milk. Is that clear? Isn't that what he's saying? You are not now able, for you are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are you not carnal and walk as men? He's saying here in no uncertain terms that if we have disagreement and schism and division among us, that there is carnality involved. And here he was not discussing his carnality, he was discussing theirs. For while one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom you believe, even as the Lord gave to every man? I have planted, Apollos has watered, but God gave the increase. Each had his own job. Now, isn't that what he said in 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4? That each has his own job within the body that he is assigned to accomplish. Well, we are laborers, verse 9, together with God. You are God's husbandry. You are God's building. But he was given a job to perfect the saints, to help them, to guide them, to lead them, to correct them. We'll see that in a moment. And he reiterates in verse 11, the only foundation is that which is laid by Jesus Christ. He did not feel that he had the ability to loose and bind anything that came into his head. He stuck to the foundation of Christ, and this is Christ's Word, God's Word. Let's see, let's go on. I just want to, I want you to get an overview here of, uh, of his approach to the problem that he was going to address in a little bit. Verse chapter 4, Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. He's saying that the ministry had been given stewardship of the mysteries of God. The Word of God is a mystery to most people. They don't understand it. The carnal mind cannot understand it. The carnal mind is enmity against God, Scripture says. So, he had been made a steward of the Word of God, of the mysteries of God. And he had to be faithful in it. Verse 3, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yes, I don't judge my own self, for I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified. But he that judges me is the Lord. So you can say what you want about me, and you can make whatever judgment you want, but I know I'm being judged by God, and I'm going to act accordingly to be sure that that judgment is a good judgment. It says, therefore, judge nothing before the time, till the Lord comes both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall every man have praise of God. But in the meantime, we have to have men, since Christ is not here, and men, as priests or as ministers, are a shadow of that which is to come. The foolishness of preaching should not be needed. But because we are not perfect and have not come to the full stature of the fullness of Christ, it is a necessary thing. You chafe under it, you are not yet fully converted. If it bothers you that God has set men to lead, to guide, to correct, and to oversee, and to correct, then you are not fully transformed, you are not fully converted. It's just that simple, it's what Paul says here. It is God's way, what God has established. If you don't like it, then you don't like what God has established. Remember what he told Samuel? They haven't rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me. I am the one who put you there. I am the one that gave you that priestship, that authority. And if they won't follow what you say, don't worry about it. It's me. They don't want to obey. Verse 6, And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes. He had given Apollos authority to teach and preach, to guide and to lead there. That you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. For who makes you to differ from another? And what what do you have that you did not receive? Where did we receive the truth? Did it come from us? No, it didn't. Came from God. Came from the minister he sent, Herbert Armstrong, and those whom he trained. Didn't come from us. There is no one here who came across the truth himself. No one. There is no one in the greater church of God who came to the truth by himself. No one. Oh, there are people who had this element and that element of truth here and there, but no one put it together. God inspired the man to put it together. And he didn't even give him everything. There are still things in this book that Herbert Armstrong did not understand that we are coming to understand now. Herbert Armstrong was never the authority. The Bible always was. And he said over and over, don't believe me, believe your Bible. Now, I'm reading the Bible to you. A lot of people in the Church of God don't agree with these Scriptures. Well, you're just interpreting that. No, I'm not. I'm reading it. So many words he says these things. If you chafe under that, you're yet carnal. That's all. I had to listen to others preach to me before I was ever assigned to preach. If I had chafed under that and said, those guys can't tell me what to do, I would have never been commissioned to preach and teach. Just wouldn't have. So I had to learn from them before I could teach. Now, did they teach me absolutely everything? Not yet. I'm still learning, still digging it out of the Bible. It's not wrong for you to read the Bible, but sometimes we need guidance and direction because we might not get the right things out of it. We might misinterpret some things according to our own viewpoint. So we need those who will rightly divide it and not allow us to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine that might come up. verse 16 he says wherefore I beseech you be you followers of me there's another place he said follow me only as I follow Christ but he had been set there as an apostle to be followed been trained by Jesus Christ for this cause have I sent to you Timothy who is my beloved son in in the truth not his physical son and faithful in the Lord who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways which be in Christ he was there to preach the same things Paul had preached. Not have his own gospel, not have his own ministry, but to preach what he had been taught. As I teach everywhere in every church, Paul was an apostle assigned to go around and preach in all the churches. Timothy was assigned a particular congregation to back up the things that Paul had come and taught. Now some are puffed up as though I would not come to you. They don't think Paul would ever come handle this. So they can think what they want. But I will come to you shortly, if the Lord will, and will know, not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What will you? Shall I come to you with a rod, or in love and in the spirit of meekness? He says, it's up to you. I'll either bring a a big stick, or I'll bring gentle words. You decide. I will bring whatever is necessary to straighten out the problem that I'm leading up to. Then he addresses the problem. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication is not so much as named among the Gentile that one should have his father's wife. Now, research has perhaps shown that this was incest, and uh, it was a mother-in-law that the fellow was sleeping with. And you are puffed up and have not rather more. Now, this would be a direct violation of the Ten Commandments, of the whole Bible, and all the instruction in the Bible for what was happening to have been going on. Now, what was their attitude in the Corinthian church? Here you have to kind of understand a little bit about Corinth. It was a very immoral area, and sexual immorality was rampant. It was common. It was accepted. And that's the society they were coming out of. So here they had this fellow that was in the church, and they weren't fully converted yet. They were not fully transformed yet. So they were puffed up about it. And they didn't mourn that he that has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I truly, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already, as though I were present concerning him that has so done this deed. Now, Paul made a judgment from afar and said this cannot continue. It will not continue. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we are gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such and one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, Paul did not have them take a vote on this. He said, I have already judged this. This man is out of the church. You make sure he is not physically there. I am concerned about his ultimate salvation, not his sitting in a chair in church today. If he is put away from the church, and away in that sense, from God, Satan has free reign. And that man would have to make some decisions. Will I repent? Will I change? Will I go the way of Satan? Or will I repent and go the way of God? He was left out there alone to make that decision. Why? Because this was a communicable disease. It could have been catching, and especially among a people who didn't have many morals to start with. So he made a decision and laid it on them. Your glorying is not good. Know you not that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You let this man stay there and pretty soon you'll all be doing what he's doing. It can't happen. You've got to stop. Now it had been a private sin that no one had known about. Maybe he could have worked with him and, and brought him to repentance, but everybody knew about it and they were puffed up about it and, you know, they were kind of laughing about it, you know. To them, it was no big deal. Just like in our society, it's getting to the point where fornication, adultery is really no big deal. Everybody does it. Now, let's take this one step further. This passage, this section of Scripture, has been used many, many times, so this is old hat, to show that Paul was an authority. But let's ask another question, which I've never heard posed in the church at any time that I can remember may have been done somewhere, I just didn't hear it. But let's ask another question. What if Paul had written this from a different perspective? What if he hadn't established his apostleship and hadn't established that Apollos and Peter and Timothy had been sent there by him to teach? What if instead he had said, let's bypass that ministry? He didn't do that. He outlined their authority, but they obviously were not handling this. Maybe Timothy was there, but he had not done what Paul had instructed him as a young minister. Maybe he had let them despise him. Or maybe when he said there, I've sent Timothy, maybe Timothy wasn't there yet, but he had sent Timothy to straighten the Mass out. And Timothy was on his way. You didn't jump a plane in those days. You jumped a camel or a boat, a sailboat at that. So maybe they had despised Apollos, and he was sending Timothy to straighten it out. Wouldn't it have been simpler, had there not been hierarchy, there's that bad word, to have simply written them a letter and said, I hear that there's a fellow committing fornication, whatever the specific sin might have been, a sexual sin anyway. And I would like you all to take a vote on this and decide whether he should stay or go. What if he had done that? What, predictably, would have happened? I can tell you what would have happened. Without this background that Paul gave in the first four chapters... Had he requested they put it to a vote, they would have voted that this man stay in the church. See that? They were puffed up about it. They thought it was kind of funny or neat that this guy was getting away with it or something they all wanted to do and maybe were doing. So it wasn't any big deal to them. And had it been put to a vote based on what Paul says about their attitude toward this man, They would have voted that fornication stay in the church. There is no way, based on what Paul says here, that they would have said, put this man out and turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh till he repents. They wouldn't have done it. They thought it was neat. It was cool. It was acceptable. That's the way they thought. Now, Paul called upon his authority that Christ had put in him, He called on Apollos and he called on Timothy, and then he said, You put that man out from among yourselves. There was no democracy. There was no vote. It was a done deal. So they did it. Then the man repented. Now, once you finally tar someone with a brush, you destroy their reputation by saying that man needs to be turned over to Satan, in a sense you've pigeonholed him in the eyes of the minds of people. And forevermore, that was the fornicator that Paul wrote this strong letter to us about. So then they had just the opposite opinion. Now this man was anathema. So the man did repent. The man did change his habits. Now, he was totally unacceptable to them. Now, did Paul, again, in Second Corinthians, when some time had transpired, write to them and say, now, take a vote among yourselves as to whether you should readmit this man into the church. No, he did not. He heard reports ministerial reports or whatever there might be, that the man had truly repented. He was no longer committing fornication. That he had turned to God. And Paul says, well, this man ought to be forgiven. But what he ran into was the people were not about to accept him back. Now, this man whom they had accepted in his sin and been told that can't be, now viewed a man who had repented of his sin... And then we're going to take him back. He's dirt. He's mud. Forget it. Now is that the forgiveness of Christ? Seventy times seven? They needed someone appointed to make sure the words of God were carried out. And God forgives. But those people at that point were uncompromising, unforgiving, and hateful. To this man, despised him at this point. They'd been smug about it and puffed up and thought it was a great thing before. Once straightened out on that, they stayed on that course. They couldn't change. Chapter two, verse seven of Second Corinthians. So that contrarywise, you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. For to this end also did I write, that I might know the proof of you, whether you be obedient in all things. To whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgive anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we were not ignorant of his devices. They were not forgiving. We talked about that a lot last night. We are to forgive. It doesn't make any difference what someone's sin was. And sexual sins are the ones that society and the church generally always regarded as the worst because of the nature of sexual sins and the jealousy of people who wanted to do the same thing, among other things. But that, those kind were unforgivable. Whereas other, you might forgive. But once a woman is painted with that brush, she's forever that way, in the eyes of a lot of people. Once a man does that, he's forever painted in the eyes of people, not as badly as that scarlet woman, because we have a double standard in our society which should not be. But here Paul told them, you must forgive this person, and it has to be from the heart. Saying, oh, I forgive it, It isn't enough. It has to be from the heart. Otherwise, Satan takes advantage of us. So there was no democracy here. Very clear that he established who was in charge, and he made the decision to put him out, and he made the decision to put him back in. And they had to follow it. Would democracy have worked there? No. They would have voted to keep him, but they would have been divided. They were already divided. He said, I've heard there's division among you. Some thought he ought to stay. Some thought he ought to go. But apparently the majority thought he ought to stay. That would have been a church deeply divided over a very emotional issue. So the decision had to be made and laid on them wasn't something they did that is the standard Christ set let me give maybe one more example there's been some controversy in recent times about Passover not which day it should be on, but another issue, and that is, should we eat a Passover meal before we take the bread and the wine? That has come up. And it is an issue that can create a certain amount of vision, especially if people don't keep it private, but say something to others about it and thereby start causing division. Should we or should we not eat a meal with the Passover? This is perhaps a good time to bring that up and discuss it a little bit. 1 Corinthians 11 is the scripture in question. Let's see what the standard should be. Now, I'll read this as written here in 1 Corinthians 11. Let's start down verse 18. He'd been talking about women having long hair and then having hair that was cut short. Uh, There was contention and division over that, so he set that straight that women are to have long hair, men are to cut their hair short. If any man, verse 16, seemed to be contentious about that issue, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. He laid down the law on it. It wasn't a matter of voting. It's just the way it's going to be. We don't have any such custom. Forget it. You women want to wear your hair cut short? You men want to wear it long? We have no such custom. It will not be in the church of God. It's not going to happen. You're not all going to get together and discuss it and decide that he was wrong. That's what it's going to be. Okay? Now, in this that I declare to you, I praise you not, that you come together not for the better, but for the worse. You're you're having meetings, but it's getting worse instead of better. You know? What meetings we have should cause things to actually get better. See, that's why I spent so much time in the first two sermons in this series showing that Christ is the standard and that He answered not when He was belittled and ridiculed or questioned, but He took it, He turned the other cheek, just as He tells us we should do in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He was a living example of that. Now, we've heard, if we've been in the church, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, many, many sermons about gossip and backbiting. And 30, 40, 50 years later, we still have a lot of gossip and backbiting. Now, if that is to stop, we have to take it personally. If Laodiceanism Laodiceanism is to stop, it must be taken personally. So I put before you that we all go to work on this particular problem since it's one of the things specifically that is addressed in what Christ went through. It is one of the major issues that God brings out in Psalm 22 in Isaiah 53 and in the New Testament about how he reacted to criticism. Major, major teaching. So if it's a major teaching, is it not something that we should work personally and together on to accomplish, since that is the standard he set. Now, heretofore, in many cases, if someone would start to gossip, we would not interrupt them because we didn't want to hurt their feelings, or because we enjoyed it and wanted to hear it, or for perhaps other reasons. Or maybe we had the same attitude, so we wanted to listen. But now that it's all out on the table, and it has been established that this is something we as a body need to work on, then every part of the body has to work on it. So instead of feeling embarrassed, or like you might hurt that person's feeling, since we're all in this together now, instead of individually, you should feel quite free to say... Let's not go there. Oh, don't want to hear that. See, it's publicly set out that this is something we need to work on. So it should be perfectly agreeable between you and the person who has brought up something negative that did not be discussed. It's easy for us to forget. It's easy for us to lapse into old customs and habits. So we need each other to remind each other That's what sharpening iron is all about, is reminding each other of what we need to do. It isn't about little things in Scripture that we might think we have special understanding on. Knowledge puffs up. Knowledge can be very dangerous and very destructive, especially when knowledge, quote-unquote, is used to divide. Knowledge should be used to bring us together, not tear us apart. If you are saying things that would cause people to have different views and ideas than what is being taught, you are creating division. Purely and simply. That's all there is to it. There is a way, if you learn something, to take that something to those who have been designated as teachers and see if it is valid or if it has holes in it, such as the Passover thing. It was brought to me, I saw that it was correct, and began teaching it. The order of the foot washing, I saw was correct, or was wrong, corrected it, and began teaching it. And I've done that with quite a few things that people have brought to me. There are other things people have brought to me that I think that I have clearly showed in Scripture were not correct and have rejected and do not teach. Now, if that wasn't sufficient proof for you, and you don't agree, then you need to be very, very careful not to cause division and schism in the body, because it would tend to indicate that you might still be carnal and not mature in Christ. Now, I'm not perfectly mature in Christ either, and I am also carnal in human. And there's where the rub comes, because it's so easy to look at a man and say, he ain't no better than I am. Automatic human reaction. You know what? I ain't no better than you are. That's just a fact. I fight myself every day to come to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ, and I fail miserably every day. I'm burdened, but not discouraged. By my own inability to do these things that we're talking about, which are very basic. But we should uphold one another and help one another. You know, you think you can hide your attitudes that you have sometimes? No, you can't. I've noticed for years and years that it's usually fairly easy to tell when people are negative and they're talking negative and they're having Rose Preacher simply by the reactions of their children. I've seen that for years and years. Children that were warm and friendly, respectful, become distant, unfriendly, won't speak to you, turn their head and they walk by. It wasn't because I quit bathing. No. Parents had been upset, and parents had been talking to each other or to other people, about the negative things that were on their mind in the house. And the children heard it. They said it in front of the children. Or even if the children were playing down the hall or in the other room, the children could still hear it. And as it got louder and louder, they heard it anyway. And their attitude changed and became negative toward the ministry, toward the church, because of all the negativity they were hearing from the parents. So, you sit and have roast preacher, you sit and have roast church, and then you can't understand why your kids hate the church and the ministry. Duh! You can't keep secrets. Marla and I, decades ago, realized we wanted to know what was going on in the family. All oh, I had to do was invite the kids over. On the ride over, they'd tell you everything that was going on in the family. You know, little kids. Even bigger ones at times. We knew most everything that was going on in the church in Soldata just by having eight or ten girls over to be with our girls. Didn't take long. They spilled the beans before they ever even got to the house. Marla and eight or ten girls in the suburban. That suburban had a purpose. No, not really. I wasn't even in the ministry then. didn't matter to me. I mean, it mattered, but it was so obvious what was going on by the reactions and the things that the kids said. You can't hide it. You know, you shouldn't fight in front of the kids. You shouldn't say gossip and talk things down in front of the kids. They'll take on your attitude. Where was I headed? Oh, First Corinthians 11. Verse 18, for first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. Do I have time to get into this? How much is left on there? Ten minutes? Let's give it a shot. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. I mean, these things are going to come up. He says, I'll figure out, and the ministry will figure out, who is doing what's right and who's doing what's wrong. It'll get figured out by attitudes. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. First statement out of his mouth, you come together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Statement A, exhibit A. Number one statement on this subject as we go into it, okay? For in eating, everyone takes before other his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. Now, these Corinthians, when they feasted, feasted according to pagan ways. And any time you had a feast, any time you had a holiday, or whatever you want to call it, eating and drinking was the main thing. So he said, you didn't come together to eat the Lord's Supper, but you're eating and drinking and you're getting drunk. What? Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? If you want to eat and drink, you didn't come here to eat the Lord's Supper, You came here for something else. Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame them that have not? So they were showing respect to persons and doing what they were doing, which was wrong to begin with. They had a lot. They ate a lot. They had a lot to drink. They drank a lot. And they didn't share it with anybody else. Is there anything that says Christ got drunk or ate too much? At that last Lord's Supper? No, but that's what was going on here. Excess. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered to you. It says you didn't come here to eat the Lord's Supper, and what you are doing is wrong. Now I'll tell you what I received directly from Jesus Christ myself in that desert of Arabia. Here it is boys and girls, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. doesn't mention anything about a meal. He says, here's what Christ taught me, people. Here's what was important. This is what he passed along. Didn't mention a meal at all. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. He's already said you didn't come here to eat. And here's what Christ told me to tell you. After the same manner also, he took the cup. When he had supped, that shows it was after supper. This is long after all of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John had been written. And after Christ had eaten, he did this. Change the symbols. That shows that that occurred after the meal. Well, it doesn't prove the foot washing at, at this point. No, we don't. let's don't get into that. Actually, it does. This cup is the New Testament of my blood. This do you as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. The bread and the wine had to do with the Lord's death. It didn't have to do with a sacrificial lamb. What did that lamb do for the people of Israel all those years? Did it offer them eternal life? Did it offer them forgiveness? No. I don't know of anything that's stated that says that it did anything in particular for them, except that it reminded them that God had brought them out of Egypt across the Red Sea. It was there to remind them that God Almighty had delivered them from Egypt. But there was no inherent promise involved. Now, I like to do things that will benefit me, don't you? Why would I do something that offers me no benefit? Now, the the body and blood of Jesus Christ offer me incredible benefits. That my sins be forgiven, that I be healed, that I be given eternal life. That's what he did. But the, the Passover lamb, chewing on bones, doesn't do me a bit of good. The blood of bulls and goats and sheep could not do away with sin. <coughs> if you can't do away with sin and offer eternal life, why bother? What's the purpose? What's the reason? So his first comment is, you didn't come here to eat the Lord's Supper. <coughs> and you came here to get drunk and eat. But Christ told me, you were supposed to come here to take the bread and the wine. And you show the Lord's death, not a lamb's death, but the Lord's death. Wherefore whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Now this is a life and death issue. <coughs> the Passover lamb was never a life and death issue except, except that one night in Egypt when the firstborn would be killed. That didn't happen ever after that. And a lot of Israel never did obey that command throughout their history, and they didn't die but let a man examine himself so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup he is the life. he explained that in John 14, 15, 16, and 17 which we read the other night for this cause many are weak and sickly and many de- are dead for if we would judge ourselves we should not be judged but when we are judged we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world what separates us from the world? the body and blood of Jesus Christ not a sacrificial lamb Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat the bread and the wine, that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about food. He's talking about when you come together to eat that which preceded this, that is, the bread and the wine. He's not talking about a meal here. He's already gone beyond that. And he emphasizes that in the last verse. You came to eat the bread, take the wine. That's what you're here for. Wait for one another and do it together. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home. That little morsel of bread you were given would not assuage hunger. It wasn't given to you for that. It was given that the body beaten by uh, of Christ was for you. So don't come hungry. And if you are hungry, eat at home before you ever get here. Don't come here to eat. That you come not together to condemnation. And the rest will I set in order when I come. Let's ask one more question about this. Who is our Passover? Is it a little four-legged lamb? Is that your Passover? 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. Last part of the verse. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. That lamb is not my Passover. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, is my Passover. It is through His death and resurrection that I am forgiven and can have eternal life. That sacrificial lamb means nothing today. Hebrews tells us that all those things in the Old Testament were shadows of the reality that was to come. That sacrificial lamb was a shadow of the Lamb of God. When the reality has come, do you you eat of the reality or of the shadow? I prefer reality. I can see my wife maybe coming around the corner of the building. Maybe I see her shadow come around the building before I see her. Am I going to be content to hug her shadow? Do me a lot of good. I might see her shadow and I might appreciate it as it comes around the corner, but when the reality comes around the corner, that's what I want to embrace. I'd rather embrace a real girl than a shadow. And I would rather embrace a real Passover than a shadow of the reality. Once he became the reality, the other meant nothing. Jews keep it, but everything they do is suspect. Or if it's not suspect what they do, it's suspect in how they do it. He is the reality. He is our Passover. We're told in the Scripture not to eat that supper. It has no meaning for us. But Christ has very, very deep meaning for us. We must get these things straight that we not be blown about by every wind of doctrine. That is the standard in the way that it is established in Scripture. Now, if you disagree with what I just said about the Passover meal, you are bound by the example of Jesus Christ and Paul not to talk about that with other people. That is the standard which he set. Now, if you disagree, you need to bring it to me, to Nelson, to Gordon, And show us in Scripture where that is wrong. Now, if you can successfully do that, I will change what I teach on it. But until then, I am going to keep the Passover of our Lord Jesus Christ, not a shadow which gives me nothing and profits me nothing. I know I'm out of time. I'm going to quit.